Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation on Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. And we are continuing to work our way through the seven examples that demonstrate how Paul nurtured Christiformity in the life of the churches that he worked with. And this week, we're going to look at Paul's culture of siblings. Kind of set it up last time because we said Paul did not call his co-workers friends. He called them something else, else which was siblings, um, which he called them loved ones. Um, and the Greek word is, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, uh, agapetoi. Is that correct? Yes, agapetoi is the word for loved ones and adelphoi is his most common word. So, yes, the, um, you know... Um, in the project on Tove that I've also worked on with my daughter, Laura, not the Laura Taro, but Laura Berenger. <laughs> um, uh, th- these two books go together because this is sort of the, the pastor um, having a good character and nurturing uh, Tove in the church in things like, um, like, uh, trying to generate the relationship between between us as siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than, let's say, leaders and followers or teachers and students, uh, that we are we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It really is a radical idea. So, so yeah. I, I interrupted you. Sorry, Laura. No, it's just it's interesting to think that that was an intentional choice that Paul made. And what led him to make that particular choice? Um, And you write that it's not so much the term itself as it is the revolution of love through the revelation of God's love in the cross and the resurrection that turns Christian love into something not captured in the Roman Empire's typical terms. So Paul is doing this intentionally. um, And he's he's saying something about the love of Christ seen in the cross that leads to these different kinds of relationships. Now, you know, Laura, the um, I, I've said this many times. It would have been impossible for Paul's typical observers, whether he was in Ephesus or whether he was in Tarsus or whether he was in Corinth, Corinthos, or way up in Thessaloniki. Um, everywhere he was, people would have seen his relationship to the people around him as something like friendship in the Greco-Roman world. And Paul could not have not thought of these, uh, of that category. And yet there is such an avoidance of that term. And it, you know, people have said in Philippians that there is a, that it's like a letter of friendship because it trades in some of the activities of friends. I wouldn't ever want to say that Paul didn't think of his co-workers as friends, but he didn't conceptualize their relationship as friends. And it's so obvious that he doesn't do this, that you have to think he had something else in mind. And when 
And when we look at what he does call them, I think we we see what he's trying to do. He calls he sees their relationship in terms of agape or love, agape toy, my beloved brethren is the way it was translated in the King James Version, um, that, um, that he saw the model of their relationship in the model of the way God loves us in Christ. And the way Christ loves us is that he came to be among us and gave himself for us so that we could experience redemption and new life. So suddenly, it is not simply the categories of friendship. It is the category of love as revealed in the revolution, the revolutionary way of life in Christ, what Michael Gorman calls cruciformity, mm-hmm. is learning to live in light of that cross and letting that cross of self-denial and giving ourselves for the sake of others that's what reshapes Paul's understanding of friendship so much that he no longer calls them his friends. I'm I'm impressed by this. And you know, I I sat out at one point in the in the former chapter and in this chapter to study Paul's theology of friendship. Mm. And Paul converted me from a theology of friendship to a theology of siblings. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to think about how that would have worked out um, in their just day-to-day interactions, like how that yeah. translated. Um, and, and you well, write Well, let me that, give you an example. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. An example. What happens when Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon and says... He's no longer a slave. He's a he's a sibling. Something happens in that relationship that now, at some level, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't believe that Onesimus stopped being a slave or that Philemon emancipated him. None of that language is present. But what is obvious is that something happened in their relationship that transcended anything that they had categories for. So um, I think that in Colossians chapter four, you know, he says the masters are to treat them with justice and equality, if not equity. And that is some, I don't think we've explored that adequately. I, I Mm. I don't know exactly what it looked like in Paul's churches, but I gotta think that there was something altogether new in their, let's say, their mealtime habits, yeah. as Conrad Gempf, uh, Gempf once wrote about, are in their uh, normal interactions with one another, in their relationships with one how they talked to one another, how they treated one another. All of a sudden, something was different. And that was because they're now siblings. Uh, they're not friends. They're siblings. And this transforms everything. Yeah. It's, it's fun to imagine, and it's interesting that Paul uses this designation over and over again. Um, you write that the idea of siblingship is the dominant self-understanding and self-designation of the church. 
and that the dense concentration of the term sibling means these church folks were to think of themselves more as siblings than as the body of Christ or saints or fellowship or even church, that this is the most common way of designating their relationship. Um, And it's quite different than I think a lot of the terms that we use now. Um, So that gets me thinking like, what would change in our interactions as a church if we thought in terms of siblings, um, how that would impact the way we interact when we gather and the way that we treat one another. Um, it's just interesting for me to think about what, how, how is that different um, than um, some of these other terms that we use to describe church life and our relationships yeah. in the church? You know, you, you quoted, you used four of them. Well, I think you're quoting from me there. The body yeah. of Christ. Okay, this is this is one soma, body. This is one of Paul's terms. Um, that's a very physical relationship, a physical category of body parts, and uh, Paul sees the church members related to one another the way body parts are. They work together. Saints. This is one of the most popular ones. We have tended to use this term for the most exalted of categories. You know. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church only gives the word saint to very, very few special people. All right. So they pronounce, they give them sainthood. And I and I grew up with this. I remember saying that person was a real saint. And this, when I was in college, this senior in college said, oh, that's a terrible use of that word. We're all saints. And I went, <laughs> well, I know I grew up saying that some of the special people in my church were the saints in the church. Uh, but that's the way we use it. And that means devoted ones. But Paul doesn't use the term that often. Fellowship. We like this word fellowship. Uh, koinonia. Uh, it, it describes a common life. And we use the word church. In fact, people say, what is Paul's theology of the church? And one of the terms they use for it is that they are brothers and sisters or siblings. I think maybe we should flip this and say, what is Paul's theology of siblingship, and isn't the body of Christ, saints, fellowship, and church a dimension of siblingship? This this flips everything, and and I um I don't know I have a little bit of a habit of doing this in my church. I look around at people uh, right now because of COVID they put us farther up front. I don't know why. Uh, because we get we kind of get assigned seats. Um, I look around, um, especially when I'm farther back, and I think, you know, that's a that's a brother or that's a sister in Christ. And I was recently in a conversation with someone who's really reformed, and and he says to me, you know, we I can't believe we get along so well, even though we differ so much. And I said, well, we're siblings in Christ. We should get along pretty well. And I and I I really do believe that this is a radical making possibility mm-hmm. in our churches is to learn to see one another as siblings. I know there's some other things that you want to get to here, but that I, I think this is a pretty significant category. And I do believe it can flip the way we understand the way we normally talk about church. Yeah, I think that's good. And and one of the phrases that you use in this chapter is that of a fictive family. 
And the first time I heard you say that, I was like, what in the world? Like a fictional, fictive family. Um, and thinking about that, well, you you say something about that. What what do you mean yeah. when you talk about a fictive family? Well, uh, this is a kind of a popular term among scholars. Um, is that we we don't we're not really you and I are not really. I'm not a brother, and you're not a sister. Are it's fictive. It is a an, an imagined reality on the basis of faith. It's a spiritual reality that we learn to live into. So that's what fictive means. It doesn't mean it's fake. Um, it doesn't mean it's false, but it means it is transcending. It's metaphorical. It transcends the physical relationship that you have with siblings, that I have with my two sisters, that my wife has with her brothers and sisters. It's different relationship, but fictive has become also a very popular and powerful metaphor or metaphorical relationship that we have with one another. And we learn to live in that family in a way that transcends even our other families at times. This is Jesus looks around and he, you know, when his mother is trotted down from Nazareth to Capernaum, probably, to Peter's house, they knock on the door and they say, your mother and your brothers, whatever, is at the door. And he asks the question, who is my mother mm -hmm. and brother? And who, who are my sisters, etc." Powerful expression. Then he points to the circle of people. I'm just imagining that they're all sitting at his feet. And he says, this, this circle is the true family in which I live. And that's the beginning of a fictive relationship of brothers and sisters, of siblings that we have with one another, that is a, is a deeper spiritual reality than the physical family. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. It's it's like a deeper reality that we live into, that we grow into over time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then you go into looking in depth at this metaphor that Paul uses and you lay out several different aspects of why Paul is choosing this particular term. Um, and you go into five different themes about sibling relationships and there's love there's love for all, mutual growth into Christiformity, recognizing the safety and security of boundaries, and knowing that sibling relations begin with Jesus, who is our elder brother. So these are five different aspects of the sibling relationship that make it so important. So I wondered if you'd say a few things about each yeah. of those. Yeah. You know, one of the things yesterday in a in sermon at our church, um, Ethan McCarthy was preaching. He works at InterVarsity, and he says uh, he was using the word brothers from a psalm. And he said, "No matter what you do, you are always siblings. Mm -hmm. You can never unsibling yourself." I suppose there's people who try to do this and who break family ties, but mm -hmm. but um, there there is something about a family that once we recognize these relationships that we can explore them. And love is the defining characteristic of family and sibling relations. Um, it, it finds its way, this kind of love finds its way into unity, solidarity, concord, 
cooperation. These are some of the categories that emerge from this kind of loving relationship. It is, it is interesting though, isn't it, that siblings is a, is a dynamic category for Paul. It's really big. And yet every sibling that I know knows of considerable tension in their relationship. You know, some brothers and sisters don't like one another, mm-hmm. uh, don't get along, they argue a lot. And yet uh, they remain siblings. So Paul doesn't have a rosy utopian theory of siblingship. So he brings this church relationships into categorical realities that everybody understands Mm -hmm. instinctively as a love relationship that requires um, striving for unity at times, some solidarity that works, uh, concord and discord cooperation and lack of he understands this and he knows that this is the best term to describe the churches that he has planted this is kind of amazing you know instead of saying well he really wanted because they were siblings he wanted to get along really well but maybe it's because they don't get along really well (laughs) that he decided to call them siblings Mm. you know maybe they get along less well than friends do in the idealistic world of Aristotle and Cicero. Mm. And yet this is a permanent relationship rather than a voluntary relationship. Well, you got me thinking about that. I wonder. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good idea. I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe (laughs) it's because of the dynamic of a family that Paul thought brothers and sisters was even better than friendship. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's fun to think about. I, I read something years ago that talked about siblings and was making the point that the relationship you have with your siblings is the longest relationship you will have consistently throughout your life. And in other mm-hmm. words, like the people because they're your age, they're close to you in age yeah. and they come from the same parents. And that is a, a relationship you form young and you carry with you through your whole life. Other people come and go, but your siblings have a very extended experience with you. They're Um, with you maybe when you die. You know, um, there's also something like a, there's a prejudicial uh, favor. There's prejudice Mm -hmm. about siblings. You know, uh, siblings cannot get along. I've seen this like with baseball kids. And I've seen a lot of siblings because I coached kids for a long time. Uh, they can badmouth their brothers and sisters, but when you badmouth them, you're going to find out that they're going to rise <laughs> up in defense of their of their siblings. So there's mm. prejudice like that. So I yeah, I'm I'm really I'm really impressed with Paul calling us siblings. I, I think yeah. there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, and you have this great quote. It's you're quoting Joseph Epstein, who's quoting someone else. Um, but he says, love is an agreement on the part of two people to overestimate each other. And I've been thinking about that a lot, that it's, it's a quality of love that gives one another the benefit of the doubt that overestimates each other. And I think what a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to love each other in the church, that we're supposed to overestimate one another. You know, Paul says in Philippians two to, to, um, to estimate people higher than yourselves. So that's the, uh, that's sort of a 
a look at this by Emil Choron. Uh, mm-hmm. That's who Epstein's quoting. Um, I think that there's something extraordinarily normal about siblings and love of siblings is that no matter what they do, we know more about them than other people. And therefore, we can excuse them. We can explain them. We understand why they did this. And uh, I'm reading right now um, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. I don't oh, know if yeah. you've read this. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, you may have read it. Did you read it in high school? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, see, I did too. But it's been a while. <laughs> my high school year, my high school years were longer than yours, and they're in this long drive from Oklahoma out to California. And one of the most noticeable things is how the siblings talk to one another, and when one of them wants to go ahead of the other and will meet you in California, you know, another one says. We don't split up the family. Mm. And there, there's something there is that there's a protectiveness um, and they defend one another. When someone comes in to criticize them, they, they have words of defense. I mean, there's, there's a lot of illustrations of what, uh, of overestimating and, and there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the language used of, that they talk about things is really pretty funny, but. The um, overestimation is is that um, confidence and the uh, belief in one another yeah. that says, um, no matter what they do, I'm in their corner. That's yeah, that's good. I think that's that's what love is. Yeah. Advocacy. Yeah. Then the second aspect of siblingship is that it's love for all. And this, I think, so this, we're talking about the quality of this love, but then this love is extended beyond just people that are like you, maybe beyond people you have a natural affinity for. This is love that extends to people that are different from you. And I think that yeah. what Paul's doing here is radically countercultural in his context. Yeah. So say something about yeah. that. Um, siblings love one another in spite. I mean, there's there's hierarchy in, in the ancient Greco-Roman family. You know, the oldest son had um, had rights and powers, authorities that others didn't have. So there's some inequalities. Um, there's a recognition that some people are more gifted in something than other than someone else. And so uh, there was already a preparation for accepting difference. But there's something that happens in Pauline theology that blows apart the categories of families. Families are people who are born largely of the same parents, or at least legally they've become uh, some kind of relationship like that. And um, so there's an inherent uh, alikeness. Paul brings people together that formerly were unlike. So neither Jew nor Greek. And I'm not into uh, showing the superiority of Christianity to Judaism by saying that people in the ancient world were prejudiced. My goodness, all you have to do is read into the second century. You can find all kinds of prejudice 
on the part of Christians too. But um, we live with ethnic sensibilities, um, educational sensibilities, economic sensibilities, uh, racial sensibilities that leads us to think of ourselves as superior or better than. I mean, it's pretty hard to grow up in any world that I know of where you don't develop some of this. Paul seemed utterly intent on shattering that mindset. And so he says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Now that one to me is a, is a blowing apart of categories and not male and female. All of a sudden, Paul is talking about ethnic, racial differences being blown apart, about uh, social status and power being blown apart, and gender, sex being blown apart. And now all of a sudden, we are one in Christ, and we, we learn to look at one another and relate to one another on the basis of our oneness in Christ rather than our distinctiveness. This does not destroy uh, distinctiveness. You know, you're a woman, I'm a man. Um, I'm older, you're younger. It's not going to change those categories, but there is a basis for a union that is not natural, that mm-hmm. is supernatural and spiritual yeah. that Paul wants to explore in his churches. It's... Uh, yeah the most radical edge of Paul's theology. Yeah, this is great. You you write that Paul undoes the elitism of friendship approach to relationships in the church, not only by admitting that all are sinners, but also by imposing the constant obligation to love everyone in the fellowship, regardless of status or virtue. Hence, calling church people siblings means expecting that church folks will love all their church siblings and not just those of their own gender, age, or status. And I, I, I was reading this week um, a book called A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman by Holly Beers, where she it's, it's sort of a fictionalized account of a woman experiencing um, first century Ephesus. And there's a scene where she describes a worship service, a Christian gathering, and this woman is observing as high-status people are taking the food and serving their own slaves. And just the the level of shock that that you know kind of ripples through as people are seeing this in action. And I thought that's just a really I want to learn more about that. Like, that's really interesting to think about how that would have played out in their worship services and in their daily lives as as some of these status separations are being challenged um, by the early church and by Paul's teaching and and how they would have experienced that is just really fascinating to me. Well, there's a great book, uh, a Roman book, uh, it's the title of this section in the book is called The Feast of Trimalchio. And it's a really good, it's, it's, it's wild. And it's so opulent. And it's so much the affluent. But as I read it, and I read it recently uh, just because something came up in the book of Revelation that I wanted to explore it again. So I, re- I read it too, and I'm thinking, what happens to The Feast of Trimalchio 
if it's suddenly radically converted to the ways of Jesus. And virtually everything that happens would be flipped. And uh, Robert Banks uh, wrote a little book. I used to assign it in my courses at North Park called Going to Church in the First Century. And what would it have been like to walk across Rome and attend a Christian fellowship in a home? What, what would it have been like? And I think, I think what we see is that people will be treating one another in these household house churches in ways that they would not have done before and in ways that would not be normal in the city of Rome. So, yeah, big, big difference. Big difference. Yeah, it's, it's fun to think about. The next aspect of siblingship is this idea of sibling growth. And this gets at that idea of advocacy. Um, that sib you write, siblings have a responsibility to foster growth and virtue in one another, and they are thus accountable to one another. So this idea that we have a responsibility to encourage one another to be growing and to be growing in virtue, um, that that is, we're, we're responsible um, for growth in one another. Well, this is what uh, older siblings do with younger siblings. Isn't this right? Isn't, don't we learn this? You know, Chris and I are walking around the lake, and right now we have um, wood ducks with little babies in there. They're learning from their parents, of course, but um, and because that's how generations work with with uh, ducks. But we we learn we learn from our siblings. Our older siblings teach us how to ride bicycles, and I've I've noticed this with children who have older siblings. When, let's say when they're 10 years old, they're advanced compared to the 10 year old who's the oldest in a family. Right. They know all kinds of things that the, <laughs> that the, the normal, ten, the, let's say the single 10 year old would not know. This is what happens in the, in the family of Christ. We are responsible as siblings to help one another grow. And this was mm -hmm. a key ingredient of understanding siblingship in the Greco-Roman world, is that growth was mutually dependent upon learning from one another, especially the older children, and growing into the template created by that older child, which was established by the parents. So uh, we see this, you know, a little bit in the New Testament, but in, in one sense, Paul is the older brother, and he's helping, he's helping people grow in Christ. When they convert new people like Epaphras, Paul had to teach him how to minister. He wasn't just a seminary prof or a pastor mentoring Epaphras into pastoring. He was an older brother teaching a younger brother how to live in Christ. Older mothers teaching younger mothers in Christ. So it was, uh, it was uh, a big dimension of earliest Christianity was this sibling mutual growth. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I, I think it's it's a big check mark in the pro column of intergenerational worship and intergenerational yeah, church yeah. life. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. We we have devalued uh you know what I often say is the gray hairs and the bald heads. Uh we don't value the wisdom dimension of older people. And we need 
this is to our this is to our detriment. It is to our benefit to value our older brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we have in our church 96-year-old Randy Matthews and 91-year-old Alice Matthews. And they always, you know, we, they're not back yet, but I, I communicate with them a bit. They always have wisdom mm. on whatever happens in church. I bet. We can learn from them. Yeah, that's great. Older brothers and sisters. Yes. And and to think of the pastor's role in that as well, to, that the pastor yeah. is an elder brother or an elder sister, but it's it's not a separate category altogether. Um, yeah. You are a sibling. Yeah. Yes. This is very important to remember, too, is that mm-hmm. pastor is not a role. Pastoring is um, a calling of, an, let's just say, a, an older brother or sister. Mm-hmm. to mentor others into the very life that they're living, not so that they can keep them under their thumb, but so that they can become uh, fellow Christians and mature in the same way. The next aspect of siblingship you have is boundaried community. And this one is a little bit challenging. I think it again to understand, but um it's, it's a boundaried community that, and you say that what marks the siblings in the Christian community is baptism, a life of faith under Christ and the identity that flows out of those waters. And that the boundaried community is to learn to know itself as nothing less than a community of siblings that like ancient families is to maintain its honor by living appropriately as a community of faith. So what, what is a boundaried community and, and how does siblingship play a role in that? Okay, a family is a designated physical reality, you know? There are five in my family, all right? There are a certain number in Chris's family. There are four, five in in the family I grew up in, okay? There are four in Chris and my family. We have Chris and Scott and Laura and Lucas, right? Now, each of our children have siblings, and one of them has two children and one of them has two dogs. No, three dogs. Okay. So, but only we are family. And, you know, we can be extended family. But there's a difference between family members and non-family members. And a family member in Christ is someone who is in Christ. A Roman or a Greek or an Egyptian or a first century Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus is not a part of the family, the boundaried family in Christ. So these siblings have boundaried relationships. And this is um, a category typically discussed in ancient Roman and Greek families, is that there are, there's an inside, you go inside your house, and only you have access to certain rooms, and that's the way life is in a family. And that's that's transferred into the church. In the redeemed community, those who are in Christ are those who are in Christ. Those who are not in Christ are not a part of this family. So it's a boundary community. It's, uh, it's not, in that sense, it's inclusive-exclusive. Um, it's not attempting to be mean-spirited about and creating big walls, but there is a reality that baptism 
faith in Christ changes about people's relationship with one another. Yeah. And that change is a boundary crossing mark. Yeah, that's good. And we treat one another and our expectations are different within that context than they are outside of that context. So I think yes. that's helpful. And then the last aspect that you have is siblings from Jesus onward, um, that Jesus himself taught that uh, his followers were to be siblings to one another. And then Paul adapts this language when he inserts this idea of adoption. Um, so Christ the Son sends the Spirit to give us new birth, and that becomes for us a metaphorical adoption into a new family, and we become children of God. So we are found in this new context, this new family, and we're giving, given the role of siblingship with one another, with Christ as our elder brother. Is there anything else well, you want to say yeah, about that? Well, to me, uh, it's really important to understand. Okay, the first thing is, let's say the word brothers, siblings, in the Hebrew Bible is typical for the way Jews talked about one another, especially the men talked about one another as brothers, right? Uh, but it becomes an extended metaphor of siblings, the way we use it in Christianity. Jesus used this language too. But when he says this, who are my brothers and sisters? He puts himself as one of them. He's not, in a sense, the father and they are the children. God is the father and he is God's son. And he draws us into that sonship language. The Apostle Paul, so I, I quoted this from Mark chapter 3, 31 to 35, where Jesus says, who is my mother and brother and sister, etc.? These are my brothers and sisters and mother and, and father, etc." So Jesus, Jesus already is using this language of siblingship for the relationship of his followers and for his relationship with them, he becomes the elder brother. Paul um, enhances this, develops it. Through the power of the Spirit, Brother, uh, people are adopted into Christ. And now through the Spirit, they are regenerated to become children of God. In that sense, they partake in the sonship of Jesus, in the siblingship with one another. And we become, uh, in Pauline theology, we become the siblings that Jesus designed us to be. So siblingship starts for Christians with Jesus. For Jewish Christians, it probably started in their Hebrew Bible or, or what they learned from the Hebrew Bible in the Torah. So um, this from Jesus onward is important to me. This is not something the apostles made up. It's something they developed out of the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. So. And, and this idea that I think is so hard to wrap my brain around, but I think it's so critical is that, that our status changes because we are in Christ, that we are given the status of Jesus, which we absolutely don't deserve, but that, um, that, that's something we are brought into through Christ, through the spirit, um, that we, we become part of his sonship in a way. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting. 
All right. Well, I want to end by reading this very long paragraph because I think it's so important. But this is the conclusion of this chapter. And there's so much in here, but it gets at a lot of these ideas. And it says, or you write, that for Paul, we are more than friends. Friendship is not the goal. Rather, friendship morphs into siblingship. We are siblings because of our elder sibling. We, come, we become siblings through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. We are related as siblings only because of Christ and his redemption. And this means that our elder brother Jesus reveals the path of cruciformity and Christiformity. And to be siblings to this elder brother means that we are to become like him in every way possible. He made us siblings by an act of profound humiliation and therefore set the example of Christiformity. But Christiformity is not so much a moral achievement as it is a divine presence of Christ in us through the Spirit that transforms us into his likeness. Our relation to one another, then, is not natural, but fictive and spiritual. It is not our own achievement, but his. We are siblings only through and in Christ, our elder brother. And I read that whole well, thing because I think it encapsulates so well what you were doing in this entire yeah. chapter. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is what it's all about, is that it is because of Christ that we are siblings with one another. And, and so if we're, you know, in a sense, we could say if we're not doing well as siblings, it's because we're not in Christ enough. We're not gazing upon Christ and his image because he will draw us into loving, harmonious relations with one another. So that's a great... Even on, twi that, even on Twitter. Even on Twitter. I think that's such a great sort of test for us is if we're having trouble with one another, that the source of that has to be our relationship with Christ. How do we understand our connection to him? Um, because that should flow out into our connections with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it's the other person who was not properly related to Christ, not us. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way we think of it, though? That's yes, it totally it. is. They yeah. need to change, not me. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we need to grow. For, for a lot of our listeners, um, it's helpful to think about this from a pastor's perspective and to realize that the pastor has a role in nurturing this culture of siblingship in the context of their church. And I think that yeah. that is a challenge for people to think about just how how that actually works. How do we actively create a culture of siblings in the context of our church, um, that the people who come grow to see one another as brothers and sisters and, and grow an appreciation for elder brothers and little sisters and, and understanding um, how we're called to live as siblings together. So I think that's a fun thing. I hope our listeners ruminate on that a little bit and think about their own responsibility, whether they're a pastor or a person in a congregation, but to think how they can help create that culture of siblings in the context of their church. So, well, so think, far, uh, I, yeah. I think I, I would add that uh, they have to see themselves at, in Christ as Christians and to learn to treat the men and women in their churches as siblings. And it will, I think it can help nurture a culture of siblingship. But when the pastor 
sees himself or herself above the people, it creates that sense of hierarchy that needs to be broken down if we're going to become siblings. Yeah, that's good. The pastor sets the tone in that. Yeah. Well, so far as in this series, we've looked at Pastor Paul's emphasis on the culture of friendship and the culture of siblings. And next time we'll look at the culture of generosity. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 